0: If you know, you know. That is the introduction to uh, WWF Championship Wrestling uh, in 1983. So you know what this show is going to be about. But before we do that, uh, welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, a podcast about classic pro wrestling. Uh, Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. Uh, If you just put in Stick to Wrestling in Facebook, it'll come up and... Has to be included and i will include you it is a really good group we'll talk more about that in a minute also i invite you to follow me on twitter or wherever it's called. x what are they doing over there but <laughs> uh put in the word john mcadam and and follow the guy with the stick to wrestling logo as his avatar i want to bring on our occasional co-host steve generelli steve how are you
1: I'm doing good, John. It's great to be back. And uh, I wanted to also uh, give a shout out to our uh, uh, Stick to Wrestling Facebook page. We had uh, SK Lee uh, look back on the failures and successes of Tough Enough, the WWE's version of American Idol. Uh, Jerry Buckholtz endured Bash at the Beach 2000 as he's getting, getting ready to watch Dark Side of the Ring about it this week. And uh, David Hardy posted a whole bunch of pictures from the Wrestle Reunion in Tampa that Barry Rose uh, discussed with us last week.
0: Yeah, you know, I want to talk a little bit about last week too. I it, we that podcast came out two days ago, and I've had three people reach out to me and say, "Yeah, wow, is, is stick to wrestling close to being over? Like like breaking kayfabe?" No, I think I made it sound way <laughs> worse than it actually was because you know I'm talking to Barry, and Barry was talking about being a little bit burned out, and I was like, you know, just genuflecting on the times, the handful of times that I felt a little bit burned out doing this but i don't feel burned out at all right now i mean give me another six months 18 months three years it's gonna happen probably but i'm nowhere near close to that wall steve
1: well i I sat there you know with you doing the show last week with barry and i I heard what you were saying and and i mean i i do remember vividly you said that uh you know you you had a lot more life in you and you had a few uh maybe not maybe not a few hundred shows left but maybe 150 more to go so uh I think we have lots more good shows to do.
0: I, I'm I'm wanting to get to 500, and we're like 230, I think exactly, away from that. And you know what? One thing, and I I want to make perfectly clear, I'm I'm not dissing i'm not making fun of anybody i from the facebook group i saw an audio clip or actually it was a video clip with audio of todd gordon the former ecw promoter who has a his book is now out as a matter of fact and todd todd's 10 exactly 10 years older than me off, off by a couple of months and todd sounded really old and i'm not once again i am not making fun i'm not you know just disrespecting the man he just sounded really old and if if i start sounding old like that i want people to tell me look you sound old because i don't want to be out there sounding that old does that make sense steve oh no it makes perfect sense and
1: and i, I heard todd on one of the shows and uh, he basically explained why he sounded so old apparently he's oh. done a lot of smoking over the years so <laughs> that's, okay has done a number on
0: his voice Apparently. All right. Well, I've done zero smoking, so hopefully I won't sound like that in 10 years. Um, (laughs) But anyway, we're going to talk about the WWF World Wrestling Federation from 40 years ago, the summer of 1983. Steve, you lived through it. You were still in New York, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay, and I was up here in Nashua, New Hampshire, so we were right in the middle of it, living the dream. We have audio, uh, but let's talk about what was going on coming in. Uh, TV, uh, almost as soon as the spring of 1983 ended, Tiger Chung Lee debuts with Fred Blassie as his manager. Steve, here's some, how much of a geek I was, Okay. <laughs> Tiger Chung Lee debuts on WWF television. And I'm like, I've seen that guy before. I've definitely seen him. And for a couple of days, I'm like going through my mental Rolodex. Where have I seen this guy? And I pinpoint it. It was in a 1976 edition of Inside Wrestling where they had uh, a feature on Wahoo McDaniel. And he was fighting this guy, Kim Duck. So the next week, WWF Wrestling is on, and I am armed and ready with this magazine comparing <laughs> Tiger Chung Lee on my TV to the guy in the magazine, and yes, it's him.
1: Yeah, I, I think I must have had like a similar reaction to what you did. Uh, I mean, I did pull out my old issue of the magazine, but uh, finding out that you know, Tiger Chung Lee and Kim Duck were one and the same was kind of like one of those aha moments. You know, It was like, uh, wow, this, this is really neat.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I definitely had those. I had that with Billy White Wolf and and Sheik Adnan. I mean, I just want to throw this into I was going through a big change here because they recently took WOR off my cable system, which meant that I couldn't watch the WWF show at midnight anymore. Well, now it's only on 11 a.m. On Channel 56 here in Boston, and wouldn't you know it, at 11 a.m. on Saturdays also is world-class championship wrestling. So now, Steve, I'm going back and forth between the channels. I'm not going to lie, and I just don't have my, my nose pinned against the WWF uh, television like I used to.
1: Yeah, I I was luckier, I guess. I had um, the Midnight Show still in my market. And I think we even had uh, the B Show we had locally in Binghamton. So, uh, you know, I I guess I got to really focus in on the WWF in those days.
0: (laughs) I mean, and don't get me wrong, you know, I, I watched about half the show, and I always went to the to the shows at the Boston Garden. If there was a local spot show, I hit that one as well. Um, but yeah, Tiger Chung Lee, he struck me as a guy who was going to get a reasonable push, like a one-and-done against Bob Backlund going around the horn, and I just never saw him as being, you know, so minor league that they couldn't do that, yet he never got that push. He never got out of the mid-card.
1: He was a guy I always appreciated. I mean, uh, he would work through, I think, 87 and did a lot of TV jobs. And, you know, you saw him in a lot of the house show matches. And he had a small role in the Eddie Murphy movie, Golden Child, uh, as well. So uh, he, he, uh, he, he was definitely in the thick of things as far as the TV of the WWF until uh, probably about the end of 87, I would say.
0: I think right around the beginning of 1988, uh, he made his last appearance, but I mean, wow, I mean, you know, here he is making his debut. He's going to be here for five years, which is unthinkable. And five years later, the this promotion would not resemble the one that was around in 1983.
1: Yeah, it, it, this uh, this promotion, the World Wrestling Federation. I mean, I think they're really on a curve here, getting better, um, improving, uh, and then they would probably peak out, at a, you know, depending on your opinion, eighty six or eighty seven. But uh, it, you know, it, it's also just inter- interesting to mention, John, that we're right in the thick of the final six months of Bob Backlund's reign. I mean, it's kind of sneaking up on us, but there's only about five, six months left.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And we had no idea how much the the WWF or the whole wrestling world was about to change. I mean, if you got the newsletters, you had a pretty better idea than we did. But I had no idea that the world was about to blow up. And I, you know, I appreciate Bob Backlund as WWF champion. I mean, he had a uber successful run just by this point. You know, I was tired of him. Well, one thing that that
1: I noticed when I was watching these shows, I watched quite a bit this morning, uh, there were shows from Landover, there were shows from the Spectrum, there was the MSG shows. And the real focal point of this time period that we're talking about, like June, July, is the Snuka versus Morocco feud. And, you know, to me, this is kind of unusual to have a feud like that really take center stage when usually the top feud in the federation is the champion, backland going against whoever his top challenger is, uh, or, of course, before it was Bruno against whoever his top challenger was. Uh, but, but definitely, um, Snuka against Morocco took center stage.
0: And that had never happened before since the point where I was watch- started watching in 1976. I mean... I can't even tell you what the number two underneath feud was before that. Like maybe Andre the Giant versus Killer Khan, but I mean, Morocco versus Snooka blew that one away. I mean, it was a, well, I remember, I remember when Morocco came back at the very end of 1982. And I was thinking, wow, Morocco versus Snooka, that's a dream match. And we didn't just get the dream match. We got a series of matches and a dream feud.
1: Well, watching the matches today, I mean, I I can see why it is such a fondly remembered uh, feud because uh, I watched three matches today uh, of those three places, Landover, Spectrum, and The Garden, and they were really three really different matches. I mean, there was one match where uh, Snuka got pile-driven on the outside of the ring in The Garden, and uh, I mean, that was something you had never seen in a a real competitive match before. I mean, if you saw that on a TV, he'd probably get carried out in a stretcher. Uh, but the match went on and continued. It was a very interesting match. The other matches had lots of blood. I mean, uh, and there were matches that either guy could have won, and they had different endings to every match. So um, I, I think you're looking back on a lot of the top backland matches of the past five or six years, a lot of them in the different buildings, to me, seem very repetitive. You, know, you might see the same thing in whatever building you went to. But these guys are really putting on some unique matches and uh, definitely giving the fans their money's worth.
0: You know, I'm I'm sneaking into the fall of 1983 for a minute, but, I mean, I remember reading uh, Mick Foley's first book for the first time, okay, mm-hmm. and... It was funny. I had to wait a couple of months to get that book because they didn't print enough copies. They had no idea how popular that book was going to be. Mm -hmm. I finally got my copy. I read it. And Mick Foley talks about going to Madison Square Garden, hitchhiking from Long Island to Madison Square Garden. And he talked about the show and saying, you know, they had Bob Backlund and Mass Superstar as the main event, but everyone knew the real main event was Jimmy Snookig versus Don Morocco. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, no. The, the WWF championship match is the main event, Mick. Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I mean, uh, I, maybe what he was trying to say was
1: the, the buzz, I guess. Maybe the buzz yeah. in the building was that was the, the hot match of the day. But, you know, and, and as you've attested to yourself, the match that you saw in Boston with uh, where Skolin and that both got stretchered out. I mean, that was quite a unique feud
0: as well. It was. And only Boston got that unique uh, ending where they did something spectacular and the place went wild. And, you know, I always talked about this. It's not that people were happy that Bob Backlund and and Arnold Skolan got stretchered out. I don't think that was the case. And, you know, the place was not madly in love with the mass Superstar. I think it was just like, you know, oh my God, we just saw some shit Which you know, very rarely did we see something, you know, that we took away for, with us from, from anything like that. I mean, you know, usually it's like, yeah, I saw some wrestling. Like, no, this time I saw something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because that was such a unique ending. I mean, usually, uh. The WWF was kind of cookie cutter, you know. The good guy Very comes much out so. on top, and uh, you go home happy. But you know, if you see the champion get stretchered out and his manager gets stretchered out too, you kind of wonder, like, uh, what am I going to come back to next month? Is everything going to be upside down, topsy turvy? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, you know what? I, I don't want. I'll, I want to talk about that show when we get into fall 1983. That was such a huge show. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, highlighted by I'm one of the few people still living who got to see Jimmy Snuka jump off the top of the cage and crushed on Morocco, like live, not on TV. I got to see it live. I think I'll research this before we do the fall 1983 show, which will probably be in October. But uh, I think Boston and New York were the only only cities that got that finish. Well, I definitely want to hear more about it for sure. Hey, speaking of cookie cutters, all three Samoans are back. Sika is back from his broken hip. I only say cookie cutter because the WWF tag team scene was up until right around this point, as predictable as predictable could be. The Samoans are starting to get a little little bit long in the tooth in the WWF. You're figuring that they're going to lose the titles right around fall, maybe end of the year, and the invaders have shown up, so... We had that formula uh, for forever, and they finally got away from it. But we just didn't know it. I was just waiting for the invaders to win the titles.
1: No, I, I was grateful that they finally got away from the formula because, uh, you, oh, know, yeah. you know, the WWF was going to be a much larger promotion and a promotion. And you needed to have multiple teams and kind of make it more exciting and more invigorating. I mean, the NWA, uh, always in their big uh, territories, especially mid-Atlantic, they always had a a number of really uh, high-caliber teams. The AWA usually had a couple, two or three good teams. So it was about time that we kind of picked up the slack and kind of joined where the other promotions were.
0: No, I, I agree with you. The, you know, the tag team division was as predictable as predictable could be and little did we know they were going to be getting away from that but anyway Sika is back from his broken hip and we'll talk more about that later but you know one of the first uh, uh, TVs we had was off of Sika and Samu or Samuel whatever they were calling him that night uh, in, in six man tags they had that on TV they had a match on TV Steve early in the summer where Iron Mike Sharp defeated the guy named steve gray and this is something a a video of this popped up on the facebook group not not long ago steve gray had a hairpiece at least for the first maybe 60 seconds of the (laughs) match and the the hairpiece got pulled off and it was pure comedy from there steve i'm the only person in the world who could have a theory about something like this i'm going to share it with you please do please in 1981, the WWF had a guy named Rick Bolton who wrestled George the Animal Steel. Now, Rick Bolton had a trick shoulder. You know how some people can just dislocate their shoulder and pop it right back in? Sure. Well, Steel, I don't know if you've seen this match. I'll bet you have. I have, Steel. Yeah. Okay, St- steel applies the flying hammer lock, and this guy's shoulder comes out of place, and it's flopping all over the place. <laughs> it's obviously something, well, at least to me in 81, I'm like, okay, something's gone wrong here. And then steel is like stomping on the guy's shoulder. I'm like, wait a minute. Something, what? This couldn't have just been an accident. I, I eventually found out that the guy had a trick shoulder. Steve Gray, who I had never seen wrestle before or since. Oh, let me back up. I'm sure Rick Bolton just went up to a promoter and said, hey, I I have a trick shoulder. You want me to do a match? And they said, sure. Well, you can do one match. Steve Gray, I'm positive, two years later, did the same thing. Hey, I have a hairpiece, but I'm willing to have it fall off in the middle of a match. And the promoter says, well, okay, you're big enough. And if you could just do two and a half minutes out there, we'll have some comedy. That's what we got.
1: I remember when they released the uh, those those early Coliseum home videos, and one of them was uh, Bloopers, Bleeps, and Body Slams, <laughs> which I think Monsoon hosted, and this match was on there. I, I was going to ask you, though, John, w- was this match on regular TV? Because I don't remember it being on the regular show.
0: I, You know what? I don't remember seeing it live, mm-hmm. which means that it could have been as simple as I was just watching world-class wrestling. Okay. Or it could have been, but the I, I checked the history of WWE. Thank you to uh, to those guys, Graham and Richard, who do such a great job over there. Um, they had it listed as a TV match, so I think it did air on TV. Okay,
1: okay. Well, and, and it definitely ended up on the video and was kind of one of the more memorable things on one of those earlier Coliseum video releases.
0: Those some of those releases were pretty bad. I mean, clearly aimed at people at much younger people. But I'll tell you what: before we start uh, discussing um, some of the some of the uh, arena shows, let's have some audio of Big John Stud on Buddy Rogers' corner for review purposes only.
2: Gentlemen, my guest this week, one of the giants of wrestling, Big John Stud. Accompanied by his infamous manager, Fred Blasey. John, there's been several things that I have to tell you. I've received many, many, many letters and they all seem to gear in on the same trend of thought. That is, can you slam the Giant? Can Can the Giant slam you? And can you beat the Giant? Whatever order you'd like to answer some of this, please, I have my opinion. Come
3: on, Rogers, give me that microphone. All righty. I can slam the Giant. I can pin the Giant. The Giant can't slam me. He gave. I gave him a fair chance right here in the ring. I'll meet him anywhere in the country, in the United States, any arena in the world. All he has to do is have that guts to look John Studd in the eye and have that guts to meet him anywhere. I'm gonna tell you something, Rogers. All these people out here, they're starting to see things John Studd's way. They used to think John Studd was full of hot air, but everywhere I go, these buildings are full of posters and the people are saying, John Studd is number one. John Studd is the giant. Andre, you are number two. Anywhere you go in the United States, I'm making believers out of every doubting Thomas out there. And if you if you don't think I can do it, you just make sure our name's on a contract together. And I'll make sure you have a ringside ticket. You understand, Rogers? Now, you want to know anything else, Rogers?
2: Well, as far as I'm concerned, naturally, I have my opinion. But I guarantee it differs from yours. And maybe you may not like it. So we'll, let you, we'll just let it go at no, that, nothing, and we'll go back yeah, to the ringside wrestling.
4: You understand it? It
3: stinks. Your opinion stinks, just like those people out there. Their opinion stinks, too. Uh,
0: it stinks when my opinion stinks. You know, you hear the people in the background. I always say this. When you hear a reaction on television, it is way more amplified live. If you could hear that crowd screaming at John Stud, you know he's getting a reaction.
1: Yeah, he um you know, he was really, you know, Andre's main opponent and uh that feud as we discussed on prior shows, the feud just kind of kept going on and on. Uh, but Andre had never lost, so you know, there was always something to the feud. There was always, you know, though can you slam me or not slam me and and, you know, while some fans may have said, you know, gee, this is a boring feud, why don't we can't move on to something else? Just the fact that they kept Andre undefeated, they kept studded in the mix. When it did come time to have um, Andre face Hulk Hogan, um, they had built it up into such a legendary thing. You know, could Andre ever be beaten? Uh, they definitely got their money's, back, money's worth back on all the uh, investment they put into this.
0: They did, I mean, I remember the first WrestleMania, uh and this is a year and a half later being like you know wow we're we're still doing this, and you know someone should have told me, don't worry, they'll still be doing this a year from now, <laughs> but summer of nineteen eighty three this was a fresh, hot feud, Andre versus Big John Studd, I mean, they finally found a guy. I mean, Stud was bigger than Mulligan. He was the same size as Ernie Ladd. I mean, you know, this is the guy who has a chance, theoretically, against Andre.
1: Yeah, and he had uh, a great look. He had youth on his side. Uh, I mean, he had, uh, you know, decent runs in some of the other territories, Mid-Atlantic. He was a star there. Um, and, you know, um, Andre and him, uh, they, they, you know, on paper, they were very matched up pretty well.
0: They are. And, you know, again, bring in a giant like John Studd and John Studd, as you all know, he wasn't just tall. He was a big, big guy. He looked like he could bench press everything in the gym and then some. And, you know, just, uh, you know, certainly not a good in-ring wrestler, but he he played his role really well. I mean, he, he, as you could hear from the clips we just played, the guy got heat and people paid to see him versus Andre.
1: Yeah, the matches uh, that he had with Backlund, um, I mean, that definitely also kind of added to, to his luster. I mean, um, you know, Backlund had been pretty much undefeated since he won the title. And, and Backlund did get maybe a fluky win here or there over Stud, but the wins were definitely not decisive wins. So if Stud could hold his own with Backlund, it did add credibility that he could hang in there with Andre, too.
0: The finish in Boston, I remember, was John Studd bringing Bob Backlund up for that uh, backbreaker he used to use, sure. Backlund reversing it and getting the pin, but both of John Studd's feet were clearly underneath the bottom rope. So you're right. They they did not give uh, Backlund decisive wins over John Studd.
1: Yeah, that definitely uh, kept it alive, I think, in the minds of the fans that uh, – you know, maybe maybe Stud isn't going to be a, a championship material, but Backlund couldn't really beat him either. You know, i like to, I and mean, I'm sure that planted the seed in the fans' mind of you know him against Andre. It's a perfect match. And
0: hey, you know what? Let's let's be honest. I mean, did you? Let me ask you, Steve. As a fan growing up, did you see like Bob? Did you see Bob Backlund being better than Andre the Giant? Um, no, because Andre was uh, a lot
1: uh, bigger. I mean, just the mass of Andre. Uh, you have to kind of <laughs> go with him as like the, the the hardest to beat wrestler. I mean, uh, we did we did see Hulk Hogan briefly around 1980 81, and he had a lot of those same skills. You know, this huge huge man with lots of strength. So I I guess in this time frame, those are probably the top three: uh, Hogan, Andre, and Backlund in this time frame.
0: Now, you see, I always saw it as Bob Backlund's the champion, therefore he's number one. Uh-huh. And I always kind of said, OK, maybe Stud, maybe Backlund can beat Stud, but can Andre beat Stud?
1: I guess just because Andre was undefeated, I, I, I guess I kind of put him in a special uh, place. You know, n- yeah. n- you know, not, not your top 10, because he wasn't really going after the championship, but he was in this special place of uh, elite uh, stardom, I guess.
0: I, I mean, I always saw it as, you know, Andre w- always would say, well, you know, I like to travel. Therefore, I'm not interested in a world championship. And that's like the guy in high school says, yeah, I don't have time for a girlfriend. I'm, I'm too busy with homework. It's <laughs> well, like
1: loser. Well he, well, he really, I mean, when you look at it, I mean, uh, whether it was the old Andre touring all the territories or the about to become uh, uh, WWF Andre just staying in all the WWF shows that uh, he certainly was a, a tr- traveling and touring uh, attraction.
0: Oh, I definitely, I'm not taking anything away from Andre. I mean, you know, and, and, and in 1983, I was not a smart fan at all, but I, I knew what the deal was. I mean, deep down, I knew John Studd was not going to be the guy who breaks Andre the Giants undefeated streak. As a matter of fact, in 1983, I'm telling you, I did not see Andre turning heel, which, you know, was the most should have been the most obvious thing ever that he <laughs> needed to do eventually. And I often wondered, you know, is he going to retire undefeated? And, and my answer was, I think, yes, he will. That's just where I was in 83.
1: Well, you know, that, that's kind of the sweet thing looking back at wrestling. Uh, now, uh, knowing all that we know now uh, is, uh, you know, this period that's about to end, the Backlund era, it's such, such a, you know, sweet uh, <laughs> sweet and gentle, uh, mild era. Era, I mean, it, as national expansion is, is about to come upon us, uh, pretty soon, it, you know, it would be anything goes. I mean, there wouldn't be any more uh, – you know, it's kind of like the breaking down of the walls and uh, anything goes. And, you know, not, not anything goes like in the Attitude Era where, you know, girls are taking their tops off and stuff. But, but just, just I mean, as far as uh, the, the old school mentality, uh, it, you know, we're seeing a whole new, um, you know, Vince Jr. is really broadening the spectrum of entertainment and really opening it up. And, and you're seeing a, a, a huge, you know, seeing the roster explode and that makes it a lot more exciting as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking about like the very end of the old WWF that we grew up on. You know, when we're, we're discussing these shows, let's talk about Baltimore Civic Center, June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty three. Uh, some, I'll talk about the matches of guys that I want to talk about. Really, if, if Steve, you want to jump in with some, something, you, you certainly can. Sure. Sweet Hanson defeats Butcher Rashawn. You know, Butcher Vershawn was noticeably very old at this point. Very old, uh, right too. Yes. I think Butcher <laughs> is still around, which good for him. 40 years later, Sweet Hansen had the most confusing babyface turn of all time. He went to certain cities, uh, including New York, including Boston, as the special guest referee for Bob Backlund versus superstar Billy Graham. Now. That's important because Swede Hansen was Bob Backlund's opponent when superstar Billy Graham came out and destroy or at least tried to destroy the WWF championship belt. He's still a heel and he says that oh, I'm going to referee the match the way I want to, basically. And he called it right down the line and, and superstar Billy Graham submitted. Uh, Hansen didn't, you know, pull any uh, show any favoritism and that's kind of how he turned heel except that I think the Boston match was March 1983. The New York match was December 1982. And if you didn't get that match in your area, you're like, okay, Swede just turned babyface without a babyface turn.
1: I think part of it, though, was on TV every week, Vince McMahon kept pushing the idea that, you know, he's, he's so raw boned and he's so, uh, you know, they kind of pushed him as this. Uh, you know, kind of an old pro, tough guy, and and I think a lot of just his natural likability kind of shone through, despite uh, not really trying to give him a, a real push. But uh, you know, I, I think it's also interesting to mention about Sweet Hansen here in the WWF for the most part, he's working prelim matches. But over in Japan, uh, they're doing those big MSG series over there, and him and Andre are one of the the main events over there. (laughs) One of the matches is kind of interesting.
0: That is is absolutely interesting and weird because as far as I know, I know. Sweet Hansen did go back to the Mid-Atlantic area after his 1979 slash 1980 run up here, but it felt like the only promoter in the world who wanted to feature Sweet Hansen was was well two promoters, Vince McMahon and Vince McMahon Jr.
1: He he had been, you know, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, a huge star in the Carolinas with Rip Hawk uh, back in the early 70s, late 60s. I think for a lot of the 70s, I mean, he was working, but. Um, this, this period here is kind of a, a period where his career really revitalized and he kind of became a cult hero in the WWF, uh, audience
0: yeah a cult hero and, it, and it's weird you know he's out there with a the confederate flag <laughs> and in 1983 that was just like you know hey world I like Molly Hatchet or whatever Yeah, now it's like a completely different deal but speaking of Sweet and he wrestles twice on this show uh, the second match he loses to invader number two so one match he's wrestling the total as a total babyface. the next match apparently he's wrestling as a heel crazy <laughs> well I I hope he got another little extra bonus or a payday out of it. Uh, Usually the wrestler did. If he did double duty, he wouldn't get twice as much, but he'd get like an extra little something. Sure. (laughs) All right, now the summer of 1983 also featured the WWF doing a lot of weird six, eight, and 10-man tag teams, and this one is no exception, with the main event of the show, Bob Backlund, Andre the Giant, Rocky Johnson, Tony Gurria, sub for Jimmy Snuka, and Chief Jay Strongbow defeat Big John Studd, Don Morocco, Ivan Koloff, sub for Ray Stevens, Mr. Fuji, and Sergeant Slaughter in a best- Three out of five falls match. This one went 38 minutes. I mean, Steve, what were your thoughts? I mean, this was definitely a a unique match. And Bob Backlund wrestling in a tag team in the main event was very unique.
1: Yeah, probably the only time you'd see Backlund wrestle like a tag team match, other than what he did with Morales a few years earlier, uh, would be if you maybe attended one of the TV tapings in Hamburg or uh, in Allentown. Sometimes he would do a dark match with him and Putski against uh, the Valiants or something like that. But – I'm just looking here again at this yeah yeah I mean as far as my opinion i I didn't I didn't like these kind of matches at all I mean uh, I guess if anything good ever came out of these matches maybe maybe this this idea of the five on five match just, you know just stayed in Vince's head and maybe when he was thinking of hey let's have a concept pay-per-view and this maybe materialized ah. and he said hey maybe we could do a survivor series where you know either there's a single elimination and 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 it was definitely the Survivor Series format was a lot more interesting than these types of matches were. It's it's three falls against a three out of five falls. Mm-hmm. And it usually was just a terrible match and, and not really well thought out either.
0: No, I, I like the concept in 83 because it was something very different. But you're right. The match was not very good in the ring. Probably because on each side of the ring, there are two guys on, on that side of the ring, so you can't use the ropes.
1: Yeah, that's, that's true. And, uh, in, you know, in these matches, usually you have the Samoans involved in the match, and I'm not knocking them as workers or anything, but it just, uh, they, they were just doing these kind of goofy spots. They weren't, you know, a lot of brawling involved, but, but nothing really like that would take your breath away and say, man, this is a great wrestling match.
0: No, definitely not. And the Samoans are supposed to be these uncontrollable savages with, you know, coming out with snakes and not speaking English, but suddenly they can function in this 10-man tag team match.
1: <laughs> I actually watched one of these matches today. Uh, I think it was from the Spectrum and no, actually it was from the Garden and Dusty Rhodes grabs Andre's head, uh, his partner, and he, he does a double head uh, uh, headbutt with Andre and one of the Samoans. And and it was really cool because Andre saw it like it hurt his head which was kind of funny
0: <laughs> i haven't seen that match in a while but i do remember that spot <laughs> all right i'll tell you what uh once again let's let's hear some audio buddy rogers corner with sergeant slaughter
2: ladies and gentlemen my guest this week is a sensational sergeant slaughter and his manager
4: up the all
2: right and his fabulous manager of the Wiz it seems like he wants me to stand up to interview him
4: you know Rogers when I was in the Marine Corps I did all the talking I gave all the questions how about if I asked you some questions tonight
2: you'd be my guest
4: you know ladies and gentlemen right here you have Buddy Rogers a legend in professional wrestling He held the WWF title. He held the NWA title. And one question I'd like to say to you, Buddy Rogers. What do you think are my chances of being the world champion around here? What what do you think about my chances? Do you think I'm probably the greatest wrestler you've ever seen in the world today?
2: Well, let me answer that one just one phrase. You have to beat Bob Backlund to get that title. And what you did to Backlund. I'll never forgive you, and neither will them people out there. So take it from there.
4: Listen, Rogers, you're nothing but a low-life maggot to me. I used to respect a man like you, but I don't respect you anymore. I never did like you, and the way you're looking at me right now, I have to slap your jaw. Well, let me tell you one thing, you couldn't carry my bag to the dressing room, Rogers. You couldn't do anything I could do. How does it feel now to have a man as good or better than you are standing here next to you? With that, why don't you take it back to the ringside?
2: Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's been his way all along. And with that, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. Thank you.
0: Guess what, buddy? They'd be forgiving him pretty soon. I, <laughs> I actually have the uh, the video of this, and um, Sergeant Slaughter. You know, I, I've mentioned this on the podcast a long time ago. He is such a big guy; he towers over Buddy Rogers. He's half a head bigger than Buddy Rogers, who was a big guy.
1: Well, the con- the confrontation they were having verbally sounded like. Uh, uh, Tim McCarver and Deion Sanders when uh, Deion spilled water on uh, Tim McCarver, if you remember that one. I do remember that. But, uh, but you know, I almost felt sorry for Buddy Rogers uh, getting kind of talked down to in that way, uh, considering all of his accomplishments. I mean, there's not much he could do there in that situation because, uh, you know, he doesn't want to, you know, make uh, Slaughter look bad. He's got to kind of suck it up and take it, I guess.
0: Uh, you know, it was just the it was just the role he was playing. Sure. I think more than anyone, Buddy Rogers got that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he was made to look that bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's he, you know, he was a, a very old guy at this point, and but uh, you know, it's just the way the business was. But the WWF goes to Los Angeles, California. Uh, July second, nineteen eighty-three, and they draw nine thousand one hundred people. That is Steve to me. That is such a major, major thing. They that they have just. Shown you that they can go out to a new market and do really well there. And that's, am- that's amazing
1: when you think about it, because the uh, LaBelle promotion, when was the last time they had drawn 9100? I mean, it would probably have been like 72, 73 at uh, the very latest, maybe even before then. I know the Blassie uh, Tolos thing was huge around 71, but um, sure. I
0: was going to say, I think right around 1971 was the last time.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's quite an accomplishment. And, uh, and this card is pretty loaded considering, uh, you know, they're going out to the West Coast. It's a really strong card.
0: It it really is. And I'm sure Vince McMahon said to himself, okay, if I can do it in Los Angeles, I can do it in Chicago. I can do it in Miami. I can do it in Dallas.
1: And he, he would prove to do that
0: for sure. <laughs> he would eventually prove prove that. Right. The uh, Now, this surprises me a little bit. It drew really well. The main event was Bob Backlund versus Sergeant Slaughter. Underneath is Andre the Giant versus Big John Studd, and then you've got Jimmy Snuka versus Mr. Fuji, which is a little bit weird considering the Morocco feud was was going out of control, and Morocco was a, a, a big name. I don't know if he was a big name in Los Angeles, but then again, ne- neither was Jimmy Snuka, but mm-hmm. I mean, there were more San Francisco guys, but that's just kind of a weird matchup to me.
1: Yeah, Fuji had been a, a star for Roy Shires in San Francisco. I don't think he was really big in L.A. either. Um, and, and some of the other matches, like um, Mil Mascara's against uh, Ivan Koloff, that was a huge uh, IWA main event yes. back around 1976 or 75. And and uh, in um, maybe uh, some fans may not know this, but uh, Jack Armstrong, who was a perennial uh, favorite in Los Angeles as an opening match guy, he had wrestled in the WWF in the '60s as Lenny Solomon in New York at the Garden. So
0: it's kind of I did not know that. Yeah,
1: so it's kind of interesting. It came full circle, and there he is wrestling for them again.
0: I, I know who Lenny Solomon is, but I had no idea that was Jack Armstrong. they one wow. the same. Yep. I <laughs> live and learn. Okay, so yeah, a, a big the big deal out there, like I said, is that they drew nine thousand one hundred people, and it's like, okay, this formula can be successful. And with that said, uh, now the last time we did the WWF uh, Spring nineteen eighty three, I was openly lamenting about not having the interview where Jimmy Snooker is being interviewed in an empty, empty arena by Vince McMahon and he goes wild throwing the chairs around. <laughs> Guess what I found, Steve? You found it. I found it. It just aired after June 21st, 1983 so I figured I just didn't have it. But no, we have it and here it is. All right.
5: see Snuka... The arena is full. We take you now to the interview with Superfly Jimmy Snuka. Gentlemen, one of the most phenomenal athletes in professional sport today. His name, Jimmy Superfly Snuka. Mr. Snuka has, without a doubt, one of the greatest reputations in professional wrestling today. His past, somewhat controversial to say the least. It seems as though controversy Follows, Mr. Snuka, every place you go, Jimmy. First of all, your alignment with Lou Albino as a manager. From there, of course, your divorce, your subsequent alignment with Buddy Rogers. So much has happened to you professionally and personally, Jimmy. But nothing to what happened to you last week with magnificent Morocco if we can ask you to express your views somewhat on this latest turn of events with Mr. Morocco
6: there's only one thing I'd just like to mention to the people Vinnie that I'm just so sorry that I have lost my temper because on account of what Don Morocco was coming out there and try to involve myself in a match that I was supposed to have. I'm minding my own business. and Try to get out there and wrestle against the opponent that I was supposed to wrestle against. But ladies and gentlemen, if you can take it in your heart and understand why the reason that things like this have to become. That's because I know that Don Morocco is part of Lou Albano's army.
5: So then Jimmy, you feel that there is there is somewhat of a conspiracy then against you in professional wrestling. You honestly feel that?
6: I just think personally to myself, Vinny, that why does these people and this man have to keep sending people like out like this, like for once, it's Don Morocco. I can't understand that, Billy. Really. Yes, Don Morocco, let me tell you something, boy. Take a good look at this face and take a good look at this fart. Yes, you are looking at the superfly, but steel like this, like you holding me, has to take something like this to put it over this man's head Let me tell you something, Don Morocco. Let me tell you something. Nobody, nobody on
4: earth that comes around and treat me like this because I am the superfly.
5: Wait a minute, Mr. Snooker. Get a hold of yourself if you can. We saw Morocco come out on the interview. Buddy Rogers' corner, your manager's corner, Walk up to the apron of the ring. Obviously, he was trying to, to really get to you. We heard some of the things that he said to you. Then from there, he spat upon you, Jimmy, but even that did not bring you to what we saw, but then we saw a look in your eye like we've never, ever seen before.
6: Um... can't take this anymore. I can't take this thing anymore. Pom-
4: oh, morocco! You're gonna get paid for it, boys! Everything's gonna get paid for it! Jimmy! Come on, Jimmy! <dripping> Jimmy! No, men!
5: At, ladies and gentlemen, the interview with
0: Superfly, Jimmy Sucker. Yeah, get a hold of yourself. That always works in real life.
1: <laughs> I think Vince pushed him over the edge. I don't know why he had to do that, but.
0: <laughs> Vince is, is is dying to be Howard Cosell during these segments. He's dying to be Howard Cosell.
1: He he uh, was not only Howard Cosell, he was Barbara Walters. He, he got an emotion <laughs> uh, out of snuckle like we've never seen
0: before. <laughs> and then jimmy jimmy he he spit jimmy he spit all over you jimmy oh my god i remember watching this when it first aired and just roaring laughing and ladies and gentlemen the 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 audio does not give it justice i mean as as this is practically taunting jimmy snooker he's like got his head in his in his hands and he's shaking uncontrollably and then he finally explodes and starts randomly throwing chairs up in the air which uh. is like you know what i do Ah, oh, throw the chair up in the air i'm pissed well
1: being that the simpsons has been on for like uh, 45 years now uh, they should have recreated this, this scene on the simpsons
0: <laughs> yes they absolutely should have <laughs> You know, looking back, when Don Morocco came back at the end of 1982, I was really, really surprised that the, the Grand Wizard was no longer his manager, that Captain Lou Albano was his manager. And I thought he was going to win the WWF Championship. And then I said, no, the Albano's not going to be the manager of the world champion. Well, first of all, that would have made a lot more sense. And secondly, since they weren't putting the title on Morocco, it made too much sense to have, to have, Lou Albano as Morocco's manager because you know this feud's coming up.
1: You know, one one thing that's interesting about that, and I, <laughs> I like I like your reasoning, but you did you did think it through and everything, but in retrospect, um, the Grand Wizard had two champions uh, champions under his belt, he had Stasiak and Superstar. Um, Albano had Cole off and Blassie finally would uh, make it happen later this year with Iron Sheik. So our, our triumvirate of the uh, three wise men of the of the East, uh, they all got a taste of championship gold.
0: They did. They they completed the trilogy finally with Fred Blassie. And it was just a coincidence, but they did it. I'll tell you what. I want to play a little bit more audio for uh, for uh, review purposes. This is just the end of a Don Morocco match. Let, let's check this out. Okay. Unbelievable
5: maneuver on the part of Morocco. Giving credit where it's due. Here is
4: time three. And 51 seconds on the winner, the Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion, the magnificent Morocco.
0: And once again, I can't emphasize enough if it is that loud on TV, it is deafening when you're in the arena. That's how over Jimmy Snooker was summer of 1983.
1: Yeah, he he was uh, extremely over. I like I said earlier in the show, I watched the three matches with uh, Morocco, and you know there got to be a point in the match where uh, Snuka had really suffered uh, a major beat down, and he's coming back, making the comeback in the match, and you could see the fans were standing on their feet. I mean, there were people of all ages, kids, uh, middle-aged women, uh, older men. They are all there, really rooting him on, and, and I think he had. Uh, kind of a grassroots popularity that even Backlund didn't really have.
0: No, and and Snooker had that, you know, the the splashy finishing move, pardon the pun. This is the Superfly Splash that Backlund didn't have. You know, Backlund had the atomic drop and the uh, chicken wing. And, you know, Snooker just had that charisma. Like, you know, by the time... They, he turned babyface in 1982. I mean, the fans were clamoring for it. Well, he
1: had the, the not only the athleticism that nobody else seemed to have. He was seemed to be a step or a notch above everyone else. I think the fact that he came from the heel side and lo- the fans looked at him as like, God, he's really redeemed himself. He's really kind of removed the the darkness of Lou Albano, and he's a good guy now. I think they really embraced that with him.
0: I think, too, the, the, the fact that he was aligned with Lou Albano and then turned on Lou Albano had a lot to do with it, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Lou Albano was, was always the kind of de facto number one heel in the WWF, much like Bobby Heenan would eventually be in the national expansion days
0: exactly all right let's talk about a show they had at the philadelphia spectrum july 16th 1983 they drew ten thousand for this in the middle of the summer which is an impressive feat uh once again we have a match here uh tito santana defeats don Kernodal in 15 minutes i have this this show on disc i just don't remember this match but i mean don Kernodal in the wwf steve i've never understood it i wish don was still with us because i would reach out to him on facebook and ask him to come on and and just tell us about his WWF run he went from being one of the NWA tag team champions which was a really big deal to and after his WWF run once again half of the NWA tag team champions with Bob Orton Jr and the WWF he does almost nothing
1: (laughs) I I watched this match this morning and uh, the match before it was just about equal link to this one and 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 actually, the Iron Mike Sharp match, him beating uh, Tony Gurria was actually better than Tito Santana beating Don Curnotto. I mean, the length of the matches were almost identical, but surprisingly, Sharp and Gurria put on a much better match. Uh, The fans just couldn't get into the Santana-Curnotto match.
0: No, you know what? I, it's probably this, the second of two long matches probably dragged it down mm-hmm. and maybe both guys were having an off night because, you know, both Tito Santana and Don, John Carnot were fantastic workers.
1: It, it was funny. Uh, you can see Tito Santana was still in the uh, trying to figure out what would work for him because he did the flying forearm, not as a finishing move, but, but he used it during the match and then he did like a big splash where he would. Uh, the guy was kind of knocked out. Then he just did like a leap on top of the guy and just pinned him that way. But, uh, but yeah, he'd figure it out and start using that flying forearm. And then he had the figure four when he was facing Valentine, of course.
0: Yeah. I mean, Santana, great talent. I totally did. You know, I've mentioned this on the show. I, I did not see that intercontinental, intercontinental run happening at, at this point. Uh, once again, we have Morocco defeat Snooker by DQ when the challenger shows the referee. You have to have more than one Jimmy Snooker versus Don Morocco matches. I mean, I knew this coming into 1983 when they had the series in Boston. I was like, okay, this one will be back next month. You know, before they even got in the ring, I knew it.
1: Yeah, this this one was a really wild match. I mean, it was only 821 in length, but... They had lots of action to it, and they um, uh, had like a big pull apart at the end just to uh, take it all the way back to the dressing room. And uh, these Spectrum shows are funny because also like the garden shows, they're having uh, Cal Rudman do those backstage interviews, and those always are you know uh, have some laughs involved in them.
0: Next week, we're going to have some of those Cal Rudman interviews okay. right here on Stick to Great. Awesome. You know, from this show. Awesome. <laughs> all right. Now – The main event, Bob Backlund defeats George the Animal Steel at the (laughs) 58-second mark. Steve, I want to get your thoughts on the 58-second main event.
1: Well, uh, they knew a young guy by the name of John McCann would be in attendance. Now, no. I, uh, I, I, I guess they felt that, that you know they had done this match, uh, uh, you know, maybe every other year or something like that. And they, maybe they felt like it, this they had gotten enough out of that feud, and they figured they'd just give Backlund a quick win and and just move on to something else.
0: I mean, George Steele had runs against Backlund in se- 1978, 1981, and 1983, and. I was not a fan of Steele, so him, you know, getting those runs and then going back to Bruno and Morales—people who were older than me—must have been really tired of him. But having nothing to do with George Steele, and I could always throw in the haha, you know, any any short short George Steele is a better George Steele match. <laughs> but throwing him out we could do this with just about anybody who's like a one and done challenger i had i would have no problem with it because in a real wrestling match okay and i always felt like you should book wrestling like it's a real sport as much as you can you can have a 58 58 second main event yeah it it could happen if you if every match okay if every championship match is at least 20 minutes long what's the point of the first 15 minutes true Good point. Like this shows you, like, you know, hey, keep it pay it pay attention because there could be a pinfall at any point in this arena. that's that's my take on it.
1: No, you're absolutely right. if, if it's a, if it's a legitimate sport, anything could happen, really?
0: Yeah. So I mean, I think they 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 should have a finish like that every now and then. I mean, going further, I think how how the referee does the five count and you've got five to break, and everyone breaks it four. Like every now and then, the referee should disqualify a guy. You should get to five and disqualify a guy. There should be count outs in preliminary matches because that's what would happen if this were a real sport.
1: It, at least in this time frame that we're talking about, the wrestling, they they uh, took the refereeing a, a little bit more seriously than they do in today's wrestling. I mean, if you watch AEW or WWE, especially AEW, their referees are just – they might as well just have a hologram there. They, they don't really – they have any? They don't get involved in the matches. They're just there as a as a person. They have a third person in the ring. Uh, but at least in the, in these old days, and you had Danny Davis and you had uh, Joey Morella. They they did their best, and they you you felt like they were doing a good
0: job. A Dick, not Dick Kroll, Dick Worley, especially. I mean, he came across as this really old school, tough guy who was now a, a referee. And, you know, he he didn't take away from the match, but he added to it. He, he did. He enhanced
1: it because he always brought that credibility to it of here's an older guy that really seems to know his craft. And uh, he, he was a good, credible uh, r- referee for sure.
0: Yeah, now absolutely one of my favorites. Now on the show we have the Invaders defeating the really weird team of Mr. Fuji and Frank Williams. And then once again we get one of these oddball oddball uh, tag team matches this time it's an eight man andre the giant ivan Putski, jay strongbow and rocky johnson defeating big john Studd and all three samoans in a best of three out of five fall match i do remember this match steve and you i'm guessing you watched it earlier today i saw, i saw some parts of it yeah Okay. And what's, you know, dumb in my opinion about these matches is towards the end, the pinfalls just start flying. You get a pinfall <laughs> like every two minutes and it's just like, you know, what happened?
1: I, I know. It, it just seemed like the atmosphere in the ring, with the, the, the air was so thin they couldn't breathe. They just got touched and knocked over. They got pinned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it definitely had a, okay, let's get out of here feel to it, especially towards the end. Sure all right i'll tell you what before we get to the next show uh for review purposes only let's hear some more audio uh next up we have tiger chung lee and fred blassey on buddy rogers corner
2: welcome ladies and gentlemen my guest this week is the latest sensation from korea mr chung lee who i understand is a master at the martial arts I have very few particulars on him, therefore I've got to turn to his manager, Fred Blassie. I understand that Mr. Chung Lee does not speak English. Freddie, maybe you can give us some details.
4: Let me tell you, five years ago on my, one of my trips over in the Orient, this is the man I came across. He just finished winning the martial arts championship over there. And I guarantee you, a man without a doubt has got the most devastating karate kick and a karate chop. This man breaks stone bricks and rocks and everything with a hand right here. I guarantee you, up until now, I've kept them silent, kept them out of the country, but I figure now's the appropriate time to bring them in, and I guarantee you, any wrestler that goes up against them has got to shudder and wonder what's going to happen to him.
2: Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. He must have something for Fred to handle him. We'll go back to ringside wrestling.
0: I I like how pro wrestling always refers to these incredibly vague world martial art championship. (laughs) Like, what?
1: Yeah, and I'm glad that Buddy Rogers wasn't one of those persistent interviewers who had a lot of follow-up questions. He just kind of let it go at that.
0: <laughs> it's the only thing to do. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, once again, I totally bought Tiger Chung Lee incredibly enough as a guy. I, I was like, OK, well, I'll be seeing him again, uh, main eventing against Bob Backlund at the Boston Garden pretty soon. That just never happened. I, I,
1: I guess I never really felt that way just because it seemed like it didn't take long for them to uh pair him up with Fuji and the two of them were teaming and, and eventually they'd split them up and they'd have a kind of a little mini feud against each other. But after that, like, as we talked about earlier in the show, he kind of ended up being the uh, jobber to the stars on the heel side.
0: No, I mean, I would be sitting there watching wrestling in 1987 and watching Ch- Tiger Chung Lee, you know, as part of a jobber tag team and just reminiscing about these days when they first brought him in. It looked like he was going to be something.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I still respect him, though. I mean, as you said earlier in the show, he had a really nice run in the AWA as Kim Duck. Uh, he was well known in the 70s there. Uh, sure, he was in other promotions in other states uh, with a you know, r- variety of success, but. Uh, Tiger Chung Lee, I'm sure he had many good paydays in the WWF since we're entering the heyday of the national expansion. I'm sure he was getting some really good paydays on these shows.
0: Oh, let me tell you something. There are guys who would have done pretty close to anything to get uh, the run Tiger Chung Lee had, minus this you know run near the top in 1983. I mean, you know, eighty by by mid 84, it was pretty much established that he was a, an undercard guy, a, a jobber to the stars, and that lasted until the end of 87 or early 88. And like I said, there are guys in the business who absolutely would have done close to anything for that spot.
1: Yeah, and, and he. Um, you you know for him to get the role in golden child which was a big paramount picture in 86 for eddie murphy and paramount i mean it was probably his exposure on these shows so uh, they they just saw his unique look and it was a movie set set in china i think and he got the role and i'm sure he had a great payday from that movie
0: and you get an sag card out of it which is yeah. a really big deal it's a benefits <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know that, uh, at least back in the day, you know that was you got tremendous benefits from that. All right, now I'm going to play a clip, or Lou's going to play a clip, of something that literally changed the WWF. This had never been done in the WWF before. It's Sergeant Slaughter, Sergeant Slaughter's new ring entrance. Let's hear it.
4: The opening contest, it is scheduled for one fall with a 10 minute time limit. Introducing in the corner to my right from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, weighing 240 pounds. Here is S.D. Special Delivery Jones. And now, just entering the arena from South Carolina, weighing in at 296 pounds. Sergeant Slaughter!
5: I can't believe that automobile. A camouflage limousine.
4: Well, they say Mr. Slaughter goes first class. He really does. Ah, give me a break.
5: Bad enough that he takes his, you can hear these boos, unbelievable. Now let's see. Oh the, Look at the medals on the wizard. And look at this, Sergeant Slaughter, making his entrance. Just a file with the restroom sign, perhaps in the background. Sergeant Slaughter, what's he doing now? He's pointing out several several points on the car to be shined up. Little follows on the shoes. Uh, come on.
0: Why is that a historic audio clip? Because it is the first time that, at least since I watched wrestling, and I know they weren't doing it in the late 60s, early 70s, that a WWF performer used entrance music coming to the ring. And if you started watching wrestling in 1984, to you, I bet that's incredible because by the middle of 84, everyone had entrance music, if you were anyone and this is the first time they used it. The first time I saw it was Mid-South Wrestling in 1980s when the Freebirds came out to Entrance Music. Then a few guys in Georgia used it, but this is the first time they used it in the, in the WWF.
1: Wow. Um, it is definitely a, a historic uh, moment there. Um, and I, I think, uh, actually, it's it's a little bit of foreshadowing, too. Uh, you know... It, it, as far as using such a patriotic theme with a, with a heel, you wouldn't think that would make sense. But, you know, they had Slaughter do everything possible as a heel. I mean, he whipped the hell out of Bethlehem with the, with a riding crop. He had done all these uh, terrible things to Patterson and other people in years gone by. So, you know, obviously mm-hmm. to me, in, in my head, they're, they're thinking like, God, he's going to be a, the next big baby face. We're going to play a patriotic theme for him. Uh, they didn't know that uh, the grand wizard would pass away in October, but as time would go on, that would happen and uh the baby face turn would happen and that became a huge part of nineteen eighty four for sure.
0: It did. I remember when they had that first little confrontation between Iron Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter on TV and just being like, you know, I I hadn't thought of it before. I'm like, wait a minute. This is the most natural feud ever. The USA, USA guy versus the guy from Iran. All you have to do is turn Sergeant Slaughter.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it was really perfect. I mean, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, came in to be a president in 1981. Uh, He was a big rah-rah America guy. And uh, and there was a lot of uh, talk about patriotism, a renewed interest in that. And uh, to make him uh, an American hero, uh, being a former uh, (laughs) drill sergeant, uh, it, it made perfect sense.
0: And uh, in 1980, the United States boycotted the Olympics. And I believe by this point, Russia had already made clear that they were boycotting the 1984 Olympics. So, you know, yeah, you have that, you know, kind of rah-rah patriotism thing going on. Now, Sergeant Slaughter comes out. In a camouflage limo now, Slaughter, Sergeant Slaughter and I follow each other on Twitter and I've got to ask him where they came, where they got that thing. They also have camouflage limousines just laying around. <laughs> <Allentine, Pennsylvania, laughs> I would think. And Steve, as as the limo was coming out, Sergeant Slaughter was directing someone who had been driving the limo to continue polishing the limo. You never, you'll never guess who the limo driver was. I can't guess. Tell me who. I, nope I just had it. Mel Phillips You how
1: did how, what made you think it was going to be Mel, Mel Phillips Steve I just try to think of name name a random WWF staffer who would be a ringside <laughs>
0: or, or in in this case name a random WWF black guy who they're gonna put a chauffeur's hat on and have him polishing the limo i I get even in 1983 that was kind of offensive I don't remember being offended by it but it's like you know okay we can't have you know, Certainly can't have a euro doing this kind of work. Where, where, where's Phillips? Get him over here. Put a hat on him.
1: Well, the <laughs> thing about Mel Phillips and the, some of his fetishes got me giggling there. But uh, <laughs> well,
0: I'll, I'll tell the Mel Phillips story on another episode. I don't want to get lost here. Okay. But uh, Landover, Maryland, Capital Center, July twenty third, nineteen eighty three, nineteen thousand eight hundred attendees. It is a sellout. Once again, in the middle of the summer where it's not as easy to sell out. Uh, let me see. What are some key matches here on this show? Uh, George the Animal Steel defeats Salvatore Belomo. Rocky Johnson pins Mr. Fuji. We've got the Morocco snooker feud going to uh, with it just double disqualification. So we've got the rematch coming up there. And then we get Andre the Giant versus Big John Stud in a steel cage. I mean, no Bob Backlund, but they sell this thing out anyway. That,
1: that's very interesting because, again, as we said earlier in the show, you would never have seen that in the past. You would never have seen like a major show like this uh, for, for whatever reason not have the championship match included in it because that was usually the focal point of the entire promotion.
0: I remember in 82, they announced a, a the show at the Boston Garden and no Bob Backlund match. And we came away thinking the main event was Rocky Johnson and... It was like it was Rocky Johnson and Jimmy Snooker against Morocco and somebody else. And we were just like, wow, that's the main event. Okay. We're still going. Right. And then TV show comes on and the main event is Bob Backlund versus Don Morocco. They just didn't mention it, but no, they, they did that once at Madison Square Garden and, you know, Bruno Sammartino wrestled Sergeant Slaughter because Backlund was in Japan. They did it a few times early in Backlund's reign. They had uh, Bruno Sammartino in the main event, but like after Bruno retired, Bob Backlund was in Boston every single month. And I get that this is Landover, but again, you know, complete sellout with just stud and Andre and Morocco and Snuka on top. And really not much underneath that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was, gosh, I was probably about 19 years old when this, when this show happened. And, and and I I can remember watching these at home on USA network and uh, thinking to myself, God, wrestling is really changing. I mean, there was no observer to, to get in the mail. There was no, insider information of course definitely no internet so you you were just left wondering to yourself like god wrestling is really changing but i don't know where it's taking us but we'll we'll go along for the ride for sure
0: uh, you know what, the, the only thing I really noticed that was changing, okay, I mean, I noticed little things, but, you know, I didn't think we we're going to have wholesale changes like we did in 1984. I mean, I, I did not see that coming at all. The, the biggest change to me was the after mags were no longer buddy-buddy with the WWF. <laughs> well, that that was that was a
1: change, sure, but, yeah, I mean, this is as far as... Uh, the national expansion and and how the wwf would so completely change as far as uh you know huge huge cards and and huge uh uh, you know expansion every which way in 84 which we'll get into at some point i'm sure
0: uh we definitely will all right and once again review purposes only let's go to buddy rogers corner with andre the giant
2: ladies and gentlemen this week my guest is none other And the most lovable guy I believe in wrestling today, Giant of Giants, Andre the Giant. Andre, my last appearance here, I had a big John stud, which I know don't stand too well with you or anybody else, but I did put it across to him that most of my mail said, can you slam him, can he slam you, or can he beat you? I would like to know what you got in mind.
7: Why well, no, I'm still undefeated. And John Stott is a real big guy. And I never wrestling against a guy this size before. But to give me a slam, that's another question, John Stott. But believe me, for $10,000, take that money in the ring. And I will show you what it is to take a slam because I'm going to give you that slam. And John Stott i told you before and i said again I'm going to chase you all over the world I'm never going to be tired to wrestling against you everywhere you want I'm going to be there and believe me John Start. you claim yourself you are a giant but we're going to find it and I want the people to see it who is the real giant we're going to see it just like the show to tell the truth the real giant stand up
2: Well, I sure believe in you, Andre, and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, and John Studd. Come and get it. Put your name on a dotted line, and you will find who the real giant is. With that, we'll go back to ringside wrestling.
0: Steve, I know you just had... uh access to the audio only for that. But I just wanted to share, Andre the Giant looked really good here. He looked like he was in decent shape. He wasn't as bloated as he was going to be in about 24 months. I mean, I see him and I'm like, wow, in, in two years, this guy's going to be a complete wreck. But he looks good here.
1: Yeah, he did. Uh, he, he has some kind of crimper thing in his hair. His hair got kind of all curly all of a sudden. And uh, I, I did watch the match from Landover with him instead in the cage. And there was one interesting spot in the match where they they're kind of like an, huddled in the corner of the ring and and they're kind of like almost like in a uh, uh, locked up in the corner and uh, I I was watching really closely and I could see what they were doing uh, uh, this, the tape on Stud's wrist I think he had the blade in the tape and he's trying to unremove some of the tape so he could take the blade out and <laughs> uh, and go figure uh, you know after they move around a little bit. Uh, Andre slams his head into the cage and there there is a there's a crimson John Stud coming off the cage so
0: yeah th- this they aired uh, a a John Studd versus Andre the Giant match as part of a Madison Square Garden show which we're about to talk about Madison Square Garden July 30th 1983 27,000 in attendance including a sold out Felt Forum Steve, I, I don't want to belabor this particular point, but Vince McMahon, look how well this company is doing. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm giving the attendance wherever I have it. It's always, you know, either good or great, <laughs> like this. And Vince McMahon said, okay, yeah, this company's doing good, but I'm going to turn it completely upside down and, and turn it into something totally different than what is already immensely successful. That's always blown my mind.
1: Well, he's definitely a gambler because, uh, you know, the average person would have said, all right, we'll just take this and we'll put it on the road and we'll see how we do. And, you know, Backlund on the road, I don't think would have been a great champion uh, touring the 50 states. Uh, uh, you know, the first year of 84, H- Hogan, they didn't really uh, give him these heavy feuds to work with. I mean, the feuds he had were more like just, you know, a series of matches with, you know, guys on the road and he'd win most of the matches. And as they got later in the year, that's when some of the stuff with Piper started to develop but um yeah i mean he really uh, was very smart as how he kind of like put all the levers and gears in motion and and got everything right where it needed to be for the first wrestlemania uh here here you know we're still so far removed from that but like you say i mean it, it, the twenty-seven thousand in the garden—they couldn't get anybody in besides that. That's that's an ultimate sellout with the Feld Forum. So uh, he's he's definitely you know having a phenomenal year in '83.
0: And he's already been champion five and a half years, so the newness is completely worn off. Mm-hmm. And that, that's you know that's my argument against superstar Billy Graham, like you know. You know, Bill, uh, Billy Graham saying that he should have remained WWF champion. You can't get any more successful than Bob Backlund was, at least on this night. There was not one more seat to put a butt in. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I, I can see his point of view. I mean, he thinks that. You know, and they could have done some kind of an angle where uh, you know he gets beaten the hell out of him, and Bruno rescues him, and then him and Bru- him and Graham, uh, Bruno and Graham team up and draw a huge gate at Chase Stadium. I could see that happening, but you know, eventually you got to come down to earth a little bit. Uh, would he have been as consistent the way Backlund was so consistent with a great uh, effort and the great performances? I don't think he would have been as solid as a champion as Backlund ended up being.
0: No, definitely not, in my opinion. And another point to be made, Steve, you, know, you talked about how Bob Backlund might not have been successful uh, in all fifty states as a, a national company. Um, I, I don't he would not have been as successful as Hulk Hogan. I was about to say, I don't think. Like, no, he wouldn't have. But Still drew well at the Los Angeles Forum in the main event against John Stud, ninety one thousand fans, ninety one, eh, ninety one hundred fans.
1: Yeah, they had uh, they had dabbled uh, going out there before. I know uh, in the dying days of the LA promotion, I, I remember in the kiteser <laughs> magazines, I would read about the the Twin Devils were, were headlining a show and Backlund would show up and. So I mean they I mean he was probably a well known commodity I think W O R ran in the I think they got that somehow and uh, so they they knew who Backlund was in L A but you know like as we were you were just saying yourself I mean um, Hogan just had the the look of a, a champion and the look of the face of the promotion that Vince wanted somebody larger than life somebody. Uh, not like a humble all-American boy, but a larger-than-life superhero. And uh, I guess that was the difference between Vince and his father. They wanted two different things.
0: Yeah, and and times were changing as well. I mean, the the age of the anti-hero was upon us and, you know, Hulk Hogan had no problem wrestling dirty if the heels started wrestling dirty first. Um, So this show, that you know, 27,000 people, that's amazing. And the main event, you have Morocco and Snuka going to a double disqualification, so that shows you how red-hot that feud was. Then we get uh, Bob Backlund versus George the Animal Steel in the main event, and Backlund loses by DQ, and, and which, you know, so that means we're getting two Bob Backlund versus George Steele matches. We get Andre the Giant, Dusty Rhodes, and Ivan Putski against all three Samoans. Um, and Steve, we talked about this on a stick to wrestling maybe five years ago. I randomly watched this show, and for whatever reason, they included the Andre the Giant versus Big John stud cage match from Washington. And it was better than the Bob Backlund versus George Steele match. Good. That's how bad Backlund versus Steele was. Oh, yeah. I, I, I
1: had just watched that match this morning just to refresh myself for the show. And it, it was just so ridiculous. I mean, uh, it, it, was, it was just so lame. I mean, uh, George Steele was using the foreign object and uh, – Referee gets bumped or whatever, and, and somehow Backlund gets the foreign object, and he's going to pound steel with it. The referee comes too. He sees the foreign object in Backlund's hand, and rings the bell. I mean, it was just so lame. I mean, it it was just like you know, this was a feud that had no steam behind it. It was just like a one-off type thing. And and uh, you could tell just by the reaction, it was just like a fart in church, as they would say. Is nobody yeah. nobody seemed to care about it.
0: No, and you know it, it goes to show, like you know, you can have Bob Backlund versus George Steele on top when Jimmy Snooker versus Don Morocco is on the show. Okay, party people, got good news and bad news. The good news is this is a really good conversation with all kinds of rare audio. The bad news is you're going to have to wait another seven days to hear the rest of it. That's it for this week's Stick to Wrestling. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum. I should say us this forum, meaning all of us who listen. I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing this show every week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.
3: This concludes our podcast day.